So Matthew chapter 15, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Then came Jesus, sorry, then came to Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And we'll stop there. What an interesting conversation that this begins with. Jesus is there with his disciples. They've probably either just started eating or they have just eaten a meal. And the scribes and the Pharisees are there and they're watching carefully to every move that Jesus and the disciples make. They're just nitpicking, trying to find something wrong with what they're doing. And they see them eat and they haven't washed their hands. Now, we look around our world today and there's a sign on every street corner reminding us to wash our hands. It's like the Pharisees are in town <laughs> making sure that everybody knows the rule that you have to wash your hands. But this, is, this was the tradition that they had. And they see that these people ate their meal without washing their hands. And so they find fault in that. And they decide they're going to come to Jesus and question him about this problem that they found in, in the way, the manner of life and the doctrine of him and his disciples. In verse 2 he says, why, they say to Jesus, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now, is it a sin to not wash your hands before we eat our meal? <laughs> if you're a parent, your kids might think that it is. Oh, I hear my wife telling my kids to wash their hands constantly. Every time they come in for a meal, did you wash your hands? Every time they come out of the bathroom, did you wash your hands? It's important, right? We, we understand what might be on those hands. Uh, we understand the microbiology world today and the bacteria and the disease 
that we can carry on our hands and transmit to our food and cause sickness in ourselves. And so we know that it's important to wash our hands. So are we thinking that Jesus didn't know this? (laughs) The creator of the universe, the one who made the bacteria, didn't know how important it was to wash our hands. He didn't know the diseases that they might have on their hands when they ate these meals? Did he not understand the importance of this? How could Jesus possibly not understand this? And I don't think... it's not Jesus isn't arguing if we should wash our hands or not wash our hands. I think we need to understand that that wasn't the point of what, how Jesus responded to these people. He wasn't arguing whether they should or shouldn't wash their hands. He's really just arguing, well, it's not even an argument of, <laughs> of the legality of it. He's, the argument is more towards the heart of those who brought the issue. <laughs> and he deals with that issue, and he almost completely ignores the hand-washing thing. And just for the point of going through the the exercises, I just want to look back um, at some of the Old Testament laws as it was given, and we can see that God gave instruction to wash, but not to the extent that the Pharisees and the scribes had their tradition upholding. Um, I'm going to turn back to Exodus 30 if you want to follow me there for a moment. Exodus 30 and verse 18 verse 17 to start with. And And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, so we, we, this isn't just Moses' opinion or whatever. This is God giving instruction to Moses for the people of Israel. It says, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass and his foot also of brass to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water, that they die not. Or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord's, so they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. And so, now we have an instruction to wash their hands and feet, You have to look at this, and this isn't prior to eating a meal. This is prior to doing service for God. This is a symbolic washing to cleanse myself before God, before doing service before God. And so this is really just an instruction for the priests as they're serving God in in that area. And so we see 
water is instruction, there is instruction to wash, but in this case it's not really a, a sanitary thing as much as it is a symbolic thing regarding the cleanliness before God. When we move over into Leviticus, there's more instruction on various different things. In verse in chapter 14 of Leviticus, verse 8. It says, And he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes. And now we're talking in this passage about diseases and leprosy and things like that and they're showing themselves before the priest and getting inspected to see whether or not the disease is getting worse or better and if they're being cured of this disease and when they get to this certain point that they're cleared of it, it says and, and we get to the washing it says and he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and wash himself in water that he may be clean and after that he shall come into the camp and shall tarry abroad out of his tent seven days the next chapter verse 13 says and when he that hath an issue is cleansed of his issue then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in running water and shall be clean. And I just bring these out to the point that there is instruction given long before any understanding of microbiology and germ <laughs> issues. And there's instruction for washing, washing their clothes and washing their hands and their feet and their bodies. And I went to this one because it even brings up the point of using running water. Running water is definitely a, a cleaner source than stagnant water would be. You wouldn't want to continue washing in the same water over and over again. And so there's these instructions given, like God knew the importance of washing in certain circumstances. There's an interesting story in 2 Kings. I won't read the story, but it's the story of Naaman, who isn't an Israelite. He's a Syrian, and he has an, an Israelite slave. And Naaman comes down with leprosy, and it's the young girl who is his slave points out that if he was in Israel the God of Israel could heal him. And he gets word of this and he goes and he travels to Israel and this is in 2 Kings chapter 5. And the king of Israel is beside himself when this message gets to him that this man is coming looking for healing. He's like, how could I possibly heal? But he gets sent to the prophet Elisha. And he doesn't even get to see Elisha. But Elisha sends a servant out, tells him to go wash 
in the Jordan River seven times and you're going to be cleansed. And Naaman has a fit that he's traveled all this distance and this man won't even come and see him face to face. And he's being told to go and wash in the Jordan River, which is not the cleanest, clearest water of the rivers of the area. And he makes the argument, he says, aren't there rivers in Damascus better than the, this river? And so he goes away mad and then somebody says, if, if the prophet had told you to do some great and amazing thing, wouldn't you have done it? But he's, asked, he's told you to do this simple act. Just go and wash in the river. And so he does, and he comes out cleansed. It's interesting that washing in a river is cleansing. Now, I know these aren't really the same as what we're talking about, but it's some interesting things that come up in Scripture regarding the washing of our hands and our bodies. And it's important, and it, it is in there and directs us to that, but these people that Jesus is dealing with have turned it into a requirement in their religion that isn't even in Scripture. We'll go... There's a story not that long ago, well, not in our lifetime, but really not that long ago in history, the understanding, the beginning of the understanding of germs. And I'm sure many of you have heard it before, but There's a, I'll just read a part of this, 19th century Hungarian physician, and I can't say his name, Ignis Semmelweis. Semmelweis had the potential to revolutionize the medical world, but instead he died crazed and quite young in the exact malady he spent much of his life trying to prevent. In 1846, 28-year-old Semmelweis was fixated on a troubling problem. Women in his maternity ward at the General Hospital in Vienna kept dying of a sweating, miserable illness called childbed fever, also known as puerperal fever. He wanted to know, could some of these deaths be prevented? He studied two maternity wards in the hospital. One was staffed by all-male doctors and medical students, and the other was staffed by female midwives. And he counted the number of deaths on each ward. When he had crunched the numbers, he discovered that women in the clinic staffed by doctors and medical students died at a rate nearly five times higher than the women in the midwives' clinic. He tried out multiple theories to account for the difference, but all of them failed. Then one of his hospital's pathologists fell sick and died because he had pricked his finger during the autopsy of a woman who had succumbed to the childbed fever. 
that's when he finally saw a meaningful contrast between the hospital's maternity practices. The big difference between the doctor's ward and the midwife's ward is that the doctors were doing autopsies and the midwives weren't. Simmelweis hypothesized that doctors, fresh from the autopsy room, were spreading tiny specks of dead body to the women they were treating. So he ordered doctors to wash their hands and instruments in a chlorine solution, which immediately reduced the number of deaths. The problem, however, was that after his plan's initial success, his colleagues gave it up. This was still the area of perceived humors, when doctors blamed most diseases on variations of bad air and the other doctors didn't believe the logic behind Samuelweiss's theory. They also resented being indirectly blamed for the women's deaths. The good doctor eventually lost his job in Vienna and spent the rest of his life fighting with colleagues over sanitation. By the age of 47, he was committed to a mental asylum where he was likely beaten. And within 14 days after one of his wounds became gangrenous, he succumbed to sepsis, which is just what killed many of the women in his maternity ward. And isn't it's just incredible that this man who came up with this theory that there is something that we can't see causing this, and if we wash our hands, we can save lives. And he was absolutely right. And he was committed to a mental asylum for thinking such crazy things. Such is our world, isn't it? When somebody goes against the norm and comes up with a, a new idea, it doesn't go along with the crowd. We're called crazy. But my point in all this is that these people, the Pharisees that we see in Matthew 15, really aren't that far off base in their tradition of washing their hands. It was actually a good thing to do, and they were probably saving themselves from sickness by doing it. And it's not like Jesus wasn't aware. Jesus certainly would have been far more aware of the health benefits of this than anybody around. But again, that's really not the point that he was making in all of this. Verse 3 says, He answered and said unto them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? And he's actually moving on to a different tradition at this point. He says, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother. And he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. And so Jesus points them back to Exodus 20 and Exodus 21, where Exodus 20 is the original Ten Commandments being given. Verse 12 in the Fifth Commandment is honor your father and mother. And then in chapter 21, 
verse 15 and 17, it talks about exactly what Jesus said. He that curseth his father or mother, let him die the death. He's supposed to be stoned to death for dishonoring and for cursing against his parents. But these Pharisees and the scribes have taken that law, that instruction on honoring your father and mother. And it was understood in that commandment, it's not just young children obeying their parents, it's us, adults, at our age, as our parents are getting elderly, that we're supposed to maintain that honor and help to take care of them in their old age. And this is the issue that came up and is often described in regards to this passage, is that the scribes and the Pharisees came up with this tradition that the money that I've saved beyond my needs of my own taking care of my own family, if I promised that, if I committed that money to be given to the temple, then I'm dismissed from this requirement of taking care of my parents. And so when they have a need, I can say, no, I can't do that because I've committed this income to the temple. And so they, you don't have to abide by the commandments anymore if you do this other thing. And this exemption was never given in the law. But to get around the requirement of the law, they came up with this tradition. And that's the issue that Jesus is dealing with. Not that specific one. This is just one example of many. He's just pointing out the hypocrisy. That they've, they've made their own rules that they abide by very strictly. But the rules that God set out, they come and they don't want to do some of these things. They come up with a workaround that so they don't have to abide by these rules. And Jesus just takes the opportunity to point out the hypocrisy in their logic and in their actions. And in the, at the end of that conversation, he quotes Isaiah chapter 29, when he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, if we just look at Matthew chapter 23. There's a whole other section in here where Jesus points out a few more of these inconsistencies and these traditions that these people have made that don't, there's just no scriptural basis for it. Starting in verse 13, so Matthew 23, verse 13 says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, ye hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. 
Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense ye make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, ye shall compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And, you, and, and, and this is what they also say, Whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and all the things thereon. And whoso, whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. And he's just pointing out the flaws in the logic of these scribes and Pharisees, They've come up with all these things, and you can, if I swear a promise based on this thing, well, you can break that promise and it's no big deal. But if you swear by this thing, then you, then you're, you have to do it. You have to fulfill that promise. You're a debtor to it. You can't break that promise if you've sworn by this part of the temple as opposed to this part of it. And Jesus just points out, it's not the stuff in the temple, it's not the stuff on the altar, it's, the temple is, at that point, the residence of God with the people. And so, it's the temple that sanctified the stuff that was in the temple that decorated the gold. And the altar is where the sacrifices were burned and made an offering for their sins, and said it wasn't just the offering, but without the altar to burn it on, there's, there's no offering. And so it all works together, and it's all of the equal value. You ought not, like the whole Bible, you go back and we could study this and, and see that it actually tells us not to swear by any of this stuff. But just let your yay be yay and your nay Nay. Like, if I say I'm going to do something, you do it. If you say you're not going to do it, then you don't. Don't swear by any of this stuff and put this condemnation on your head on these things of God. But Jesus didn't even get into that issue. He just points out the flaws in their logic and the hypocrisy in their attitude in these traditions that they've created. And the real point is that these are traditions that they've created. And we see in the Jewish religion, these leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, they were the leaders in the religion, among with the, the priests. And they came up with all these controls for the people. When you think about that, the power that religious leaders have over people. And in the Jewish culture, 
Like we can live in Canada and not be part of any particular church, but if you were an Israelite, if you were a Jew, you were expected to be part of the Jewish faith. And the leaders of the religion had a lot of power over you. And they saw that power and they used it to control the people. This thing that Jesus brings up with honoring your father and mother and it, this gift, well, the point is, is they make this excuse for this gift to be given because the religious leaders benefit if the gift is given to the temple because they get to receive that gift as opposed to it going to the father and the mother. And so there's this control and this self-benefiting system of rules and regulations and traditions that are being set up. And Jesus makes the point, with your mouth you draw nigh to me, like you're honoring God with your mouth, you're saying the things that sound like you're doing this for the purpose of honoring God. But it's all just for a show. In, in chapter 23, we read the part where they make long prayers for a pretense. You ever see somebody stand up in church and have this long, eloquent prayer? And you're pretty sure that person has never spent a moment in prayer in solitude in their home. <laughs> and you can almost tell the way that they pray in public sometimes that there is no personal prayer life in that person. But it's done for a show so others will think that I'm religious. It also, verse 15 in chapter 23, Jesus points out that they, they search and make these proselytes. They convert people to Judaism and it says they make them a twofold child of hell than themselves. It's, you're converting to this religion that God established. This is... You would think that there would be salvation in that for these people that come... This is, this is the people that God gave his word to. This is where we get our Bible is from the Jewish religion. But Jesus says you're, you're sending people to hell by converting them to that. Because they were so far from God's intent and plan. And it was just traditions of men. And they're teaching traditions of men as if they were the doctrines of God. And they completely lost the point of all of it. And I wonder how often we end up coming to church as a pretense. <laughs> so we look religious and we, especially when we get into a church and we've been there for a while, and now you, want, you don't want people to think poorly of you and that you're doing, that you want to keep this reputation as a good Christian. And so now I have to come to church. And if in that church, the teaching of the church 
says I shouldn't do this or I shouldn't do that and you need to do this or that, and you start to follow those rules, sometimes we can lose track of why we have those rules and why we do the things that we do. I don't know if he's still alive. I, I just kind of did a quick search online. I think I saw something about a, an obituary for this man. His name was Bob Larson. And I had a tape of his music um, from when I was a, a young kid, and I would listen to it as I was growing up. And some of his music, um, one of the songs that I remembered, he's just pointing out walking into these different churches and these attitudes that are in the various churches and the denominations that was very much like these scribes and Pharisees were. They have their traditions and they look down their nose at people that don't follow those traditions as if if you don't do things the way that we do things, then you're not really a Christian. And he just had a way of, in his music, of making these points. And I'm assuming it's the same guy. I can't imagine two people with the same name, with a similar ministry. Um, but So a guy by the same name, at very least, had a ministry um, dealing with worldly Christians, um, he wrote a book about rock music because early in his life he was a musician and he got involved with uh, rock music and that whole lifestyle that went with it and he saw the problems that were there and he spent much of his ministry teaching against these things. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But we can get to a point, and I'm not going to preach against rock music today. Maybe next week, we'll see. <laughs> That's not the point that I'm making, is that there is many things in our world that we can preach against. And we can create these rules that the people in the church need to live by in order to look like they fit. And sometimes we simply do these things to fit in, to look like I'm as spiritual as the next family over. And we all start to look the same on the outside. But Jesus made the point, he commented, you need to clean the outside of the cup, or the inside of the cup first. But we have this tendency to clean just the outside. We clean up the outside and we, we like religion. Um, I was saying recently there was a, a Catholic group came to the Bible camp for a rental retreat one time and I had to be there just to, to manage the site and whatnot. And so I'm watching all the things that they're doing and they have their traditions that they follow and they have all these steps and it's all organized and they 
they do these things in a certain order and they have these things set up and these all these different aspects of their religion and these processes that they go through and people like that stuff we like Jen has sent before like she liked being in a church where there was like a set of things that you do and a set of things that you don't do and you can just go through that list and you can check off the list and you know that you're a good Christian but that's the outside of the cup that Jesus is talking about we can clean all that stuff up and we have a tendency to point to lost people their sin these things that they shouldn't be doing and we try to get them to act more Christian but if we're trying to get people to clean up their sin before working on their heart <laughs> we need to clean up the inside first if we clean the inside meaning I get my heart right with God I understand my sin and I confess that before God and I seek the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus sacrifice on the cross I've changed my attitude towards sin and now I don't need the preacher to tell me what I should and shouldn't do for the most part I don't need the checklist I just have God speaking to me through the Holy Spirit saying you ought not to be doing that and it's a completely different way of experiencing God and religion and that's I had a conversation this week um, just regarding religion and Christianity in its purest form can barely de be described as a religion because there isn't anything religious about it it's faith in the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ as payment for my sin that's all there is. There isn't any things I have to do to be a Christian. I just put my faith in Christ's death on the cross, and I'm a Christian. All the other things I do are just an outpouring of that cleansing that has taken place in my heart already. But we have this tendency to start teaching people we see things in people, they're not living the way that we know God would have them to live. And so we start to preach about these things and we start making lists of things that we should and shouldn't be doing. And it turns into exactly what Jesus is dealing with with these scribes and Pharisees is we end up with a religion with hearts that are far from God. It's like an outward show of godliness but our hearts are far from him and we need our heart to be close to God we need to change our heart attitude and have a desire to please him and these other things will will fall into place and yes we do need to be taught sometimes we need to be taught what the Bible says of how God would have us to live God wants us to live a holy life. I'll just finish with 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. 
says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Once we understand what Jesus for us, what he went through on the cross, we understand that I absolutely do not deserve salvation, but he gave it to me freely. Just by believing that Jesus did that, now I should want to live a holy life that's pleasing to God. And I can start to clean up the rest of that cup, the rest of my life, and they'll start to put these things into place. But we need to be careful not to replace the gospel with these external religious things that we do. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to, again, thank you for the message of your word, Lord, the, the record of Jesus' ministry, uh, seeing the way that he responds to people, um, the way that he sees beyond um, the surface of their arguments, and he sees the needs of their heart, Lord, and he points to those needs. Help us to see our own needs, to see the lessons that we need to learn, and Help us to have a heart for you, to submit to you the way that you would have us to do, Lord. Just thank you again for this time, and ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Get Royden and Emily will come, and we'll sing one more hymn.